Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Charlie Ancinelli. Thanks for being on the show, Charlie. Thank you for having me. I'm a longtime listener and first-time guest. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you. And Charlie is a former tech entrepreneur turned full-time mobile home park investor operator who owns and operates 10 mobile home parks comprising over 500 units and over $20 million of current market value. In addition to mobile home park investing, Charlie is also an angel investor and enjoys mentoring other entrepreneurs or people new to the real estate investing space. Charlie, again, welcome to the show. You know, obviously I've read a little about you and a perfect guest for our show and just hearing, you know, the success that you've had in the space. So I'm interested, you know, about hearing where you came from. How did you do that? How did you find mobile home parks? How did you know that was the asset class for you? And then we'll talk about some other things, of course, about getting there. Yeah. So those are all great questions. If you asked me sort of 10 years ago, if I, you know, be running a little mini mobile home park empire, I certainly would not have believed you or... I probably would have told you to go away. You're a crazy person. But but here I am running and managing 500 mobile home park units across Western Pennsylvania through Ohio and Indiana. And I absolutely love it and thrilled to be doing what I'm doing. So my journey to mobile home park investing really started, you know, if I think about it, probably back in 2016, I was in my mid to late 20s and I had just had my first child and my daughter and I was running a business and, and it was a good business and it was a profitable one, you know, good income. It was allowing, allowing me to have a good life and support my family, but it was, you know, very, very time consuming. I was getting burned out. You know, a lot of things you hear people complain about nine to five. Well, running a business is, is a lot of those things too. You know, you have your boss, it's just your bosses, your customers, and they're always, you know, demanding things as well. So it was a very demanding business. And I really wanted to sort of carve a path where I could eventually get my time back, but also carve a path where I can create real wealth. And so the business was a good income, but I didn't really feel like it was creating wealth. And so I had saved up sort of this nest egg of $120,000 plus or minus. And that took me a few years really to kind of accumulate. And a lot of people said, you know, well, hey, you're a young man, you got a family, go buy a house, you should buy a house. That's the next logical thing to do. That's what the banks tell you to do It's what everyone sort of says you should do. And I just I had other objectives. And I wanted to get more income streams. I wanted to, to diversify my income streams, because I didn't feel, you know, being self employed, very secure, having all of my income come from one source. And, you know, Whitney, looking back, I mean, thank goodness I, I made that decision because that business that I'm talking about that I was running is actually not even happening right now because of what's happening in this global pandemic. So I would be in a very different position talking to you today. I wouldn't be talking to you today if I didn't you know, diversify my income streams. So back in 2016, I decided I wanted to buy real estate. That seemed to be the most logical path to building long-term wealth. And so sort of on this journey of deciding, okay, well, which you know, asset class am I going to purchase? I kind of did what I think a lot of you know, people do is, is they kind of go online, you go to bigger pockets, you go to a lot of different websites. And 
and different gurus. And, and so you kind of peel back the layers of what's the right investment for you. And I've always been a fan of unsexy things. I've always been a fan of chaotic industries. That's kind of where I tend to sort of, you know, believe the value is and, you know, the opportunity to sort of take chaos and organize it is where you can really capture the most value. And so that ultimately led me to this mobile home park world. And I sort of, I think, why would I own a mobile home park? Aren't mobile homes like something that depreciates in value and the tenant base and a lot of these sort of stigmas that are around it. But as I unpeeled it, as I sort of unpacked it, I discovered, oh, okay, so the goal here isn't really to own the homes. The goal here is to own the land that occupies the homes. And then, you know, ideally, I want the tenants to own the homes. If they don't own them already, I'm going to sell them back on a 0% interest, you know, at least to own contract. So win-win, they're going to become homeowners. They're going to become long-term tenants. We're talking, you know, my tenants are 5, 10, 15, 20-year tenants because they own their home. The homes aren't that mobile. They can't drive off in the middle of the night. You know, it does cost an average of $5,000 to really move one of these homes. So unless you're, you know, a slumlord or a terrible landlord or gouging on prices, there's not a lot of incentive for them to move. And so when I looked at a lot of those factors, it became more appealing. And then I kind of unpacked it more. And I said, okay, well, you know, let me look at sort of the demand for this product, the demand for the space. And, you know, housing in America is only becoming more and more expensive and more cost prohibitive. And so when I look at the market forces, you know, for affordable housing, I thought, okay, this is something that I should probably invest in. This is going to be a long-term trend. I only see becoming a higher need is the need for affordable housing. And then there was one more very, very attractive, you know, sort of layer to all this. And that was the shrinking supply curve and the rising demand curve. So the rising demand curve for affordable housing, you know, met with a shrinking supply curve of mobile home parks uh, actually being demolished, you know, more each year than that are being created. There's a lot of reasons for that. And I won't spend this podcast getting into that. But a lot of those reasons really led me to really sort of making an unconventional decision and deciding to use my nest egg to ultimately purchase a 31 pad mobile home park in Tucson, Arizona. And I chose Tucson because I was living in California and it was something close by that I thought I could travel to relatively easily if I had to get there. And I purchased that one in 2017. I got that for $695,000 seller financing, put 120K down, you know, created my business plan to add value, to improve the quality of the park, you know, paint, roads, you know, a lot of the basic stuff bring in homes in the empty pads, you know, fill in vacancies, do some rehabs, a few rent raises because they were under market. Nothing of this is very hard. It's not very easy, but it's also not very hard. And so I followed that plan. And in a year and a half, I was able to sell that park that I had purchased for 695000 Mind you, it's cash flowing very well throughout the entire time. And I was able to sell it for $1.325 million within a year and a half. And so I thought, okay, there's something here. I think I want to do more of this. <laughs> okay. I want to back up just a little bit and ask you a few questions about some of this process. You know, backing way up a little bit, why not just go passive? 
you know, you mentioned like you had a profitable business you were working at and, and I understand, you know, very time consuming, all those things. But instead of taking that risk with your, you know, this nest egg that you have worked so hard to save over a couple of years. And even in fact, like, sounds like you put it all in that one deal in that first deal. And so why not just invest it passively and keep working the profitable business like you were? At that time, my goal wasn't to necessarily create another business. My, my goal at that time was to create an investment, an alternative investment for myself that was sort of offset some of my expenses. And, and I didn't really, at the time, think I was going to grow it into what it has become today. I mean, I had offers. I had family members and friends, you know, as I kind of talked to them, and you know, they wanted to invest with me. But I just really felt like I didn't want the pressure of other people's money at the time. I really wanted to say to myself, hey, you know, let me sort of, you know, prove with my own capital, let me put my neck on the line and let me build my formula here. And ultimately, you know, I've done that a couple of times and that really led me to sort of have the confidence in myself, ultimately, that I can be, you know, trusted with other people's money because I now do partner, you know, with select investors and LPs and on deals and I participate in the capital pool in those deals as well. But that's, it's a very big responsibility to me. I treat all of my investors' dollars like they're worth two times more than my dollars because I care about their relationships. The people I bring in, they're not strangers. Even if I don't know them well, you know, I know that they have a family. I know that they work hard for their money. I know how I feel about my money. So yeah, I think, you know, at that time, I didn't want that extra added layer of stress to something that was still new and that I was still learning. Yeah, I just felt like, why not just be passive, like invest in somebody's syndication or something like that with that and just stay in that profitable business, you know, as opposed to really jumping out here and putting, you know, all your capital in one place like that, having to operate your own park now and learn all that. Why not just invest passively? Oh, right. Yeah. Sorry, I misunderstood the question. I think the reason for that was it's just in my nature to just sort of, I just love business. I just love sort of rolling up the sleeves and getting dirty. I love figuring things out. I could have probably invested passively, but to me, it was really about doing it on my own, learning it, you know, inside and out. And I always had a passion for real estate. So it wasn't something I was like, you know, dreaded doing. What about just educating yourself to get that first deal done? Like the 31 pads, seller finance, congratulations, by the way. You know, how did you educate yourself to understand the mobile home park business well enough to feel confident enough to put that entire nest egg into that deal? And that's another great question. So I just spent about a year and a half of research and due diligence and I read books and I attended seminars and I listened to podcasts and I, you know, CDs on tape, you name it. I mean, I, I did it all. And, and you get to a certain point where you're never going to be 100% ready to do anything. My philosophy is you have to get to 80%. If you can get to 80%, you know, pull the trigger. Because otherwise, you'll just be waiting around forever. And I see these people sometimes and, you know, they kind of do the seminar sort of, you know, they got one seminar lined up and then they're going to go to the next one in Dallas for self-storage the next month. And because I think that people are afraid of failure. And so you have to not be afraid of failure. You have to be okay to accept failure, but just limit your failure by doing your due diligence and, you know, having a certain criteria and follow that criteria. I mean, look, when I bought that first park, I was like, I signed the dotted lines and it was like, you know, I was like 27. It was scary to me. It was like the largest thing I ever bought at the time. I look back now, it's like a small deal for me. But at the time it was like, am I ready for this? I just put everything into this, into a mobile home park. Am I a crazy person? But I, but I had to calm myself down and say, look, I did the research here. I had my checklist. It met my checklist. I'm going forward. 
Nice. How did you find that deal? Yeah, I found that deal because I was searching with brokers in the area. I had sort of, you know, at this point, identified the asset class, I identified sort of the region, I narrowed it down to the Southwest. And just sort of deal after deal, I was looking at, I wasn't liking, wasn't liking, wasn't liking, kind of liked it, you know, maybe, but then they like my offer, put some offers in. And then there's this one deal that was just, it was under contract and it kind of got in the wind. It was going to fall out of contract and I just stayed on it. And so the moment, you know, I was able to sort of take it over from having fallen out of contract, I was right there and ready to jump on it. Nice. You educated yourself and you just went all in. You was not afraid of failure. I appreciate that and can relate in a lot of ways. But now you sold that property, you 1031 into another one. Your portfolio has grown very fast over the last couple of years. What were a couple of keys there to the next stage of growth? You know, the first time it seems like, you know, you had the capital to go in there and make it happen. You got the seller financing. Congratulations on that. And then, you know, what about the next level being able to do more deals? Was it starting to syndicate, finding LPs? What was that? So I was, you know, sort of running this one here and Tucson and I was feeling, you know, pretty successful with, you know, about nine months in, you know, 12 months in about how I was turning it around and the proof was in the pudding. I mean, it was a moneymaker. And so then I had partnered with a couple friends and my parents on a couple opportunities in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and sort of, you know, purchased that in partnership with them because I had some extra capital, but not all the capital I needed. And we had sort of created a pretty friendly structure on those. And then we actually did quite well. And again, it's very similar, you know, we sort of followed the plan and and these weren't very big deals, but we followed the plan that I had set forth. And in a year's span, this is shortly after I had sold my Tucson property, sort of simultaneously, we had actually doubled the value of those properties as well. And I was able to refinance those, sort of buy out my partners, which is you know a couple of friends and parents, and they got a very large return. And I got to sort of you know maintain the assets, and I still have those today. And and I have some surrounding properties around those as well. So that kind of led me towards feeling comfortable with, okay, I feel like, you know, I've done a few deals now, you know, one was on my own, a couple with other outside, you know, investors. And so that led me to sort of feel comfortable, you know, using other people's money. And to this day, you know, my parents invest in my deals too. And so it's like, you know, to any investors, I mean, it's like, hey, I'm involved in it. I'm in the capital pool and so are my parents and so are some friends. So you're investing alongside my entire, not just net worth, my entire personal net worth, right? My reputation is on the line, everything I do. So it's just sort of, you know, I think inching towards comfortability. And I always suggest that to people too, is like, don't try and bite off more than you can chew. You know, if you want to buy that 10, 12 unit just to get comfortable with the whole process, do it. But I also say, sell your duplex and do it. Don't just go and try and raise money from other people and not put anything down. Go figure it out yourself. And then you have a story to tell. And then you can duplicate that story and then put some of your own funds in the, into the next deal. Or maybe not, maybe your recourse, but at least you've proven that you've done it and you have a story. No doubt. Well, you know, in the mobile home park business, as you have grown your business quickly, how do you prepare for a downturn, you know, in this business? What are things you like to see, you know, as you're underwriting or as you're preparing to do a deal that's just non-negotiable, you know, when preparing for just really the unknown? Right. So I purchased mobile home parks because they were a recession resistant asset class. The thesis on mobile home parks is that people in you know good times move up into mobile home parks and in bad times they move down. And so it sort of is the backstop to affordable housing. Now, I did not know if they were pandemic resistant. That was something I was going to find out when this came around. And it turns out that, you know, they're not pandemic proof, nothing is, but they are, they did turn out to be pandemic resistant. 
And there's a lot of factors towards that. You know, one is that most of my tenants own their home or they've been paying off their home. And so, you know, when they're looking at their bills, they're going to pay, paying their rent and their home payment is sort of the top of the list because they don't want to lose that. That's a lot of equity to them is their home. And they're also not likely to game the system and maybe use sort of, uh, you know, the, the COVID moratorium as much, you know, if they have equity and skin in the game. And that's a big thing about mobile home parks that separates it from the pack is that the tenants are really partners in this whole thing. They have skin in the game, you know, because they are homeowners on your land. So the asset class sort of by default is sort of one of the proxies of being ready for a downturn. Other things, you know, is that I'm not buying properties where if I hit X, Y, and Z, I, you know, that's how it's going to work. And that's the only way that we're going to really sort of cash out on this. I really like to find diamonds in the rough. And you can still do that in this asset class because it is still fragmented. It is still largely mon owned. It's that's changing. That's then that's not going to last much longer. But those diamond in the roughs and this asset class really truly exist a lot more. And you can find someone who has an underappreciated, distressed, you know, large asset, and you can, you know, buy it through the inefficiencies of the marketplace. You can buy it off market at a price where, you know, you know that if you had to, you could sell for a profit tomorrow. And I try to make those deals. I try to only go in deals where I know that if I needed to, if life happened and I need to sell this the next day, I'm going to, at worst, break even, but most likely turn a profit. And then if I hit my game plan, it's going to be a total home run. So that's kind of how I kind of go into it. Yeah. Do you have any predictions for the real estate market or maybe specifically mobile home park industry over the next six to 12 months? I try not to be too smart and just sort of play the basics. And, you know, I've done very well just kind of hitting singles and doubles and triples every once in a while. I think that we're going to start turning around. I don't see things getting worse. I think we are over the hump. That said, I think it's going to be a slow recovery. I don't think it's going to be a sharp one. I think we'll see. I think the biggest thing I'm kind of paying attention to is sort of, are they going to punt the COVID moratorium again? You know, I mean, I certainly have some tenants that are taking advantage of that, right? I mean, anybody who's been directly affected by COVID, you know, we have like any good landlord has done, any smart landlord, it's a business decision, has reached out to all their tenants proactively or back and said, hey, if you're having trouble, if you really have lost your job, if you have gotten COVID, if, if you're directly affected, please let us know, we'll work out a payment plan. And we have done that with, with a handful of tenants. But there's certainly some that are just using this as sort of, you know, they were going to be gone anyway. They were bad tenants to begin with. And now it's like they've gotten the green light from the government to just stick around as long as they want until this is over. So I'm kind of keeping an eye on that. And I'm hoping that March 31st is sort of, you know, the end of it. But I think that that's going to really dictate a lot of deals in the next six to nine months is that eviction moratorium. I think a lot of investors are looking at that. I know I am, and I'm now looking at deals and I'm saying, hey, let me look at the aged receivables in this deal again. Let me really underwrite the tenants a little bit better in these deals because I may be stuck with them for six months. With no income. With no income. Right. right. Yeah. So, right. so, you know, before it used to be much more emphasis on underwriting the, on the actual asset and infrastructure. And that's still the most important thing to me because, you know, I can get tenants in and out. I want good bones. But, you know, you do have to now really underwrite the tenants a little bit more closely as well. What are a couple of daily habits that you are disciplined about that have helped you achieve this success? Organization, organization, organization. I was a terrible student. I always felt like I was smart but I just was a bad student. And looking back at what made people successful at school and why I wasn't was because they used their planner and they were organized and they got things done on time. And so it wasn't really until I 
just maximize my Google Calendar and my to-do list project software like Asana? Did I really hit the next level? It comes down to execution. You hear it over and over again, but I mean, you know, I'd rather invest in a C idea with someone who's going to execute on it, right? So I live and breathe my Google Calendar, and then I have it my own daily checklist. So every day I look at my checklist, I'll move things up and down on my checklist as to what's mission critical, what can wait. And then I also examine those things and say, what can I hire for, right? And I know you're big on that too. And so that's kind of where I'm at right now is asking myself constantly the question, what can somebody else be doing that I don't have to do? What about your best source for meeting new investors right now? It's all inbound. It can be you know, maybe a podcast like this. It's typically been social media. It's really come a lot of sort of me just kind of posting and just really not asking for anything, but just sort of saying, hey, look, this is what I'm doing. This is what I did. Here's my thought on this. And sort of, and then that coming back and then people saying, okay, Charlie seems to know what he's talking about a little bit. He seems like he's a decent guy. You know, maybe they call me, we catch up. I mean, a lot of my investors are maybe people I went to high school with. I didn't know that well, and they've done well in life or people who were in my early professional network in the Bay Area who are now sort of reaching back out and I'm becoming close with them. And so it's been a really rewarding experience in the sense of it's not just me partnering with them on deals. And, and I love that because we can, you know, celebrate victories and wins together, but also, you know, getting this new friendships of people who I didn't know that that well, or maybe dropped off the radar or even inbound people I never even knew. And they reach out and I get to know them and we get to have a conversation and we get to really sort of see if it's a right fit together, because I want to make sure that they understand me and they understand you know, the investment type, and I'm interviewing them just as much as they're interviewing me. But of course, it's not really an interview. It's just a conversation. I wanted to ask you, though, before I forget, the number one thing that's contributed to your success? Organization. Again, organization. And I wanted to give another 30 seconds there. You talked about how tied you are to the calendar and, you know, inbound, things like that. When we're talking about meeting new investors, what about being tied to a calendar like that? Can I'm the same way. I have to look at my calendar all the time because it is just a meeting after meeting after meeting most days, majority of the time. How do you incorporate, say, family into that? You know, how much does your wife have, say, in your calendar? You know, how do you manage that? I've tried to include her in my Google calendar and she hates it. So I, I have to back <laughs> off on that. <laughs> She's like, don't treat me like I'm one of your employees and don't talk to me like I'm one of your employees. So I got to watch out about right. those things sometimes. It's the Google calendar and it's just my calendar at the end of the day that allows me to be a better husband and a better father. Because yeah. if I'm not organized, if I don't know when I'm going to take care of something and that it's already planned out, then it lives in my head. And then I'm not present with my children. I'm not present with my wife. And so the calendar allows me to say, hey, this is my free time. I know I have other things to do. It's on the calendar. So now I can be present now. And that's helped me. All right. And how do you like to give back? I like to give back by helping others, whether it's this podcast and someone can hear it who is like me starting out. If there's anyone who's starting out and they're serious about you know wanting help, I'm here to help them in mobile home park investing. I'm here to review deals. I'm here to give them my advice, which is worth the, the price that's paid, which is zero. So don't take it you know as gospel, but I'm here to help where I can. And ultimately, you know, I have a long-term vision of helping out, you know, my wife and I are discussing other sort of ways of charity. And now I'm looking to sort of really kind of get more involved in that and sort of pick some causes uh, this year. Charlie, it's been a pleasure to get to meet you and hear your story. Just congratulations to your success. And I know that did not come without a lot of hard work, a lot of time spent and a lot of risk, right? You're willing to take that risk. I mean, you saved up that nest egg for 
two years and invested it and went all in. And now you've even moved your family across the country and to be closer to your properties. And just congratulations to you and your family. I know that just changes the trajectory for your family forever, right? You know, with the things that you have done over the last few years and that work and time you've put in. And so tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you. Sure. So you can go to my website, which is rockstackcapital.com. You can email me, charlie at rockstackcapital.com. And Whitney, thanks for having me. You have offered a lot of value to everyone in the real estate community. And it's just been a real honor to be here. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show, brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.